And we are talking about all the different kinds of things, sex, money, success, love, all those kinds of things that are natural human desires. In and of themselves, none of these things are bad or evil. But sometimes we have a tendency to go after things to the point that they become such a huge priority in our lives that they take the place of God. And last week what I shared with you was that sometimes we make gods out of those things that we want the most, our deepest, deepest desires. And today I want to share with you on the topic of sex and romance and the idea of a soulmate. I want to talk about those things in our lives, desires, uh, romance desires, sexual desires, those kinds of things that become overwhelming sometimes to us and become things that uh, take the place of God. I had a uh, a unique experience when I was 25 years old. I don't. I, this only happened to me once, but uh, I was 25 years old, living in Boise, Idaho, where I uh, met my wife, and we got married about six years after this event took place. But Chris and I kind of had a stormy relationship, and on and off, largely because of me and my choices. Uh, but we had been dating for a while, and we were broken up. And Chris had a good friend that uh, for the sake of the story this morning, I'm just going to call her Lori. That's not her real name. But uh, Lori was a close friend of Chris's, cute little blonde girl, uh, vivacious, funny. And I was single, obviously, at the time. And and, uh, newly out of Bible school, I was in my first position as a pastor on staff at a large church. And and Chris and I had been dating, and then I broke up with her. And for some reason, this girl, Lori, who was one of Chris's closest friends, decided she would like to pursue having a relationship with me. Now, although Lori was easy on the eyes and had a fun personality, I really wasn't interested in her. But she made it very clear that she was very interested in me. And so she would frequently ask me if I would go out on a date with her, and I would just politely decline and say, no, I'm not really interested. And we would hang out in, in groups and stuff, and I always had fun, but I, she made it very obvious to me that she wanted more. And then one day she came to me and she said, Russ, I know you're not interested in me romantically, but I just want to take you out on a date and I want it to be really fun. No obligation, no pressure. I just want to go out and treat you really, really special. And she said, I will pay for everything. I just want to, I just want to have fun with you for one night. So please, please, please go out with me. And I thought, hey, free dinner, why not? So, um, <laughs> so I agreed to go out with her on this date. It quickly got very strange. Uh, The afternoon before the date, she called and let me know what I was supposed to wear, and I was supposed to dress in a suit and tie. And then this mysterious package appeared in my office, and I opened it up, and it was a bottle of her favorite men's cologne, and she wanted me to wear this cologne on this date. She, uh, She pulled up to my apartment to pick me up, And she was driving a borrowed, very fancy sports car. And so we drove off on this date. She took me out to the finest restaurant in Boise. We had this outrageous, outlandish dinner. When that was over, we jumped in the sports car and went to the next place. It was at the top of one of the downtown high-rises in Boise. 
uh, and, and we had a very expensive dessert on this uh, romantic view of the city, and everything was just highly, highly romantically charged. And I'm thinking, hey, free dinner, I'm having a great time. We got to my apartment, and Lori said to me, uh, I'd like to come in. And I said, no, thank you. And, <laughs> and she pressured me and made it very obvious to me that uh, at the end of this very expensive date, she expected me to have sex with her. She just put it out there. That was her expectation. Okay, I'm, I'm 25 and single, granted, but I'm a pastor, okay, at this point. And, and she just puts it out there. And I said, no, I think I'll, I'll go home alone. And I sent her on her way and went up to my apartment. The next day, she came up to me after church. And she said to me, Russ, I just want you to know that because you wouldn't sleep with me after I spent all that money on you, I called up one of my guy friends and we just spent the night together. And she said it just so matter-of-factly. She... She was using, at that moment, she was basically using sex as a weapon, hoping it would hurt my feelings. Uh, and, and this was a young man that, it was common knowledge in our church that they had a friends with benefits kind of relationship. And, uh, and he was at her disposal when she needed comforting, I guess. Blew my mind, because here was a young woman who was a member of a church... And she claimed to be a follower of Jesus Christ. She was a part of our social community. And yet for her, her sexuality as a single woman had become such a high priority that she was using it as a tool to get whatever it was she wanted. What she wanted in that moment was me, and she figured she could use sex as a means of hooking me. It was this desire that had become like a god in her life. Now, at that period of time in my life, uh, I was dating a lot of girls. And I wasn't, uh, I wasn't jumping into bed with all of them. That was not a part of my lifestyle. I was committed to waiting until I was married uh, to enter into a sexual relationship. But I had a different perspective and something that, uh, in the same way that this girl, Lori, had, had displaced God with, there was a problem in my life that was displacing other important things in my life. And the, the, the thing in my life that was displacing God was I was looking for this hyper-romantic, heroic love relationship. Do you know what I'm saying when I say heroic love relationship? I was looking for that one person that would, for the rest of my life, put me over the top into love la-la land and keep me absolutely in the clouds forever and ever. And, and when I say that, I'm saying this with all sincerity, this is what I was looking for. And I was dating uh, girls for two or three months at a time, sometimes not even that longer. And, and all of the time when we would start this relationship and I would have these intense feelings for a girl and she would reciprocate and we would start dating and it was beautiful and it was fantasy, fantasy land and, and wonderful. And I would feel finally I found the right person. And then when we got into real life and my, heads came, my head came out of the clouds a little bit, and we started dealing with conflict and disagreements and those kinds of things because I no longer had these hyper-romantic feelings and I was getting frustrated. I would figure, oh, this isn't the one for me. This is not heroic love. 
cut her off right there. Just done with you. And this is what had happened to Chris. In fact, I did that to her twice. And frankly, I don't know why she ever came back to me because I was brutal. And part of it was because I had bought into this notion that is really a part of our larger culture that there is a soulmate for every person and that soulmate will give you this incredible romantic charge all of the time. They will know how to satisfy your needs with ever even talking about it. They're just a perfect fit for you and it's perfect and lovely and romantic and emotional all of the time. That's what I believed and that's what I was looking for. And as a result, I became unkind, I became uncritical, and the pursuit of romance became like a god in my life. And so here's two examples of what I want to talk about this morning in which desire becomes like a god. Desire becomes like a god. And I want to ask you a question. Would you just take a moment and evaluate your own life? What is it in in your life that feels like maybe one of these stories. And here's three questions that might help you just take inventory. Question number one, have you ever felt like you would do anything, absolutely anything for another person? Maybe you've even said that out loud, like the Ray Orbison song that we just sang. Anything you want, baby, you got it. Have you ever felt that way about somebody? Question number two, Have you ever found yourself doing things that you thought you would never do? Because you wanted something and it became so important in your life that you found yourself doing things. You you saw other people doing those things and you swore, I will never be them. But you became them. Here's question number three. Have you ever taken outrageous risks to satisfy your desires? Lots of people do, lots of people have. Have you ever found yourself in that place where you just risked things ridiculously to satisfy that urge that is preoccupying your whole life? It's possible that if you can say yes to any of those questions, that desire has become like a god to you. If you've got your Bibles, would you open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 29? There's a, there's a fascinating story in Genesis chapter 29 that really piggybacks off the story that I shared with you last week. Last week we talked about Abraham and Sarah and how when they were old, they finally had a son, Isaac. Abraham was 100, Sarah was 90, and they finally had this son that God had promised them. And then the test came when God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac on the altar and uh, And that was the story we talked about last week. I want to go on from that story and and start walking through some of the other stories as we talk about these desires that can become like gods in our lives. God had promised Abraham that the Messiah would be birthed through his line. God had promised Abraham that his descendants would become a great nation, and they did. They became the nation Israel that is on the earth today. And, and, and Abraham looked forward to f- that fulfillment of that promise. His son Isaac grew up, and he married a woman named Rebekah. 
And Rebecca and Isaac had two boys. They were twin sons, and their names were Esau and Jacob. And if you've ever read the book of Genesis, you probably remember this story. Uh, Esau was the older one, and he was kind of like a man's man, and he was all hairy and redheaded, and he was a hunter and that kind of a guy. And Jacob was more of a mama's boy, and he stayed home, and he learned to cook and clean and uh, probably played with ballerina Barbie dolls. I don't know. And... <laughs> And so these two boys were very, very different, but although they were twins, Esau was the older, and so in, in uh, Jewish custom, the birthright and the blessing would pass to the older one, and so Esau expected that when Jacob died, he would receive the larger part of the inheritance, that the line would be continued on through him, that, that all of the blessings of being the firstborn would come to him. But as the story goes, Jacob decided that he would manipulate the situation and he plotted with his mother to steal the birthright from Esau. And so as as Isaac grew old and he lost his eyesight and he was preparing to die, he was ready to give the blessing to his sons. He called who he thought was Esau in. Esau came in impersonating his brother. He'd put some goat hair on his arms to make him feel like he was more hairy than he really was. And he deceived his father. His father blessed him and transferred the wealth to Jacob. And uh, all hell broke loose in the Isaac family. Because Jacob had stolen what was rightfully Esau's. The end of the story is that Jacob essentially lost his family. Esau became so enraged that he threatened to kill his brother. And Jacob fled. And he he fled a long distance away and sought refuge with his mother's family in another country. And his mother's brother's name was Laban, and this is where we're going to pick up the story. If you've got your Bibles, Genesis 29, this is where we're going to pick up this story. Jacob's arrived here now. Verse 16 is where I want to start. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Now, uh, if you just want to stop right there. When it says that Leah had weak eyes and Rachel was beautiful and lovely in form, most, most scholars believe that that term weak eyes means that Leah probably had something wrong with her eyes and it made her ugly. And so I don't know if she was cross-eyed or if one eye wandered or if they were too close together or I, I don't know, maybe they were different colors. I don't know what the problem was. But for whatever reason, Leah was very unattractive. And if you kind of read between the lines in this story, you see here Laban was a little bit worried because he was thinking it was going to get pretty difficult to get rid of Leah because she wasn't very attractive. And so there's a little bit of scheming that starts right from the beginning. Verse 18. Jacob, naturally, was in love with Rachel, and he said to, his, to, to Laban, his uncle, I will work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. Now, this is important. Jacob offered to work for seven years to buy himself a wife. Now, we're all aware, probably, that in some cultures, even today, a man will give a dowry to the woman's family when he's ready to get married to the woman, right? That happens all over the world. 
In this culture, the customary price for a bride was about two years' wages. And so a man would save, he would work very hard until he had enough money to give a dowry for his bride. Jacob was so taken with with Rachel and her beauty that he offered to pay almost four times as much as a normal dowry would be. That is how obsessed he had become with her. Verse 20. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. And then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, my time is completed, and I want to lie with her. Now, this line is very important because it gives us a window into Jacob's soul. In Jewish culture and in these early books of the Bible, you will notice that, that Jewish people would never talk in overt sexual language like we do in America. They always used euphemisms. And they would, they would talk about the sex act in very veiled terms. They would never talk about their genitalia specifically. They would use metaphors and euphemisms to describe body parts because it was a very reserved uh, uh, formal society. So when Jacob came to his uncle and said, give me my wife, I want to lie with her, he was basically saying, guys, can you imagine going to your future father-in-law and saying, give me your daughter, I want to have sex with her now. That's essentially what Jacob is saying to his uncle. It's bald, graphic language. So verse 22, Laban brought together all the people of the place and he gave a big feast. The wedding is on. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and he gave her to Jacob and Jacob lay with her. Now let me paint the picture. This is is an ancient wedding ceremony. There was great feasting. There was a lot of eating. There was a lot of drinking. In all likelihood, Jacob got very drunk at his wedding. And his wife, his bride, was heavily veiled because she would be in that culture. In all likelihood, he couldn't see anything of her because, because of the extraordinary clothing that she was wearing as a bride. And then when it was dark, they went into a tent. There's no light whatsoever. And they consummate the marriage in this tent. It was easy for Laban to do the switch and give Jacob the wrong girl. And Jacob didn't notice Verse 25 says, when morning came, there was Leah. In the Hebrew Hebrew text, it says this. I think this is kind of funny. It it literally reads like this. In the morning, look, she was Leah. (laughs) (laughs) Look, she was Leah. You can only imagine the shock that Jacob had. In fact, uh, the, the Jewish rabbis would elaborate on these stories that, that the Bible contains. And there's a, whole, there's a whole series of literature that's called the Midrash, that, that Jews, their fables and legends, and, and, and some ancient rabbis have kind of elaborated on this story, and it goes like this. Um, it says that all that night, Jacob cried out to her, Rachel, Rachel, and she answered him. And in the morning, look, she was Leah. And he said to her, 
Why did you deceive me, you daughter of a deceiver? Didn't I call out Rachel in the night and you answered me? And she said this, There is never a bad barber who doesn't have disciples. Let me say that again. There's never a bad barber who doesn't have disciples. Isn't this how your father cried out, Esau, Esau, and you answered him? The plot thickens. (laughs) So the deceiver became the deceived. And Jacob was angry, and he went to Laban, and he said, What is this that you've done to me? I served you seven years for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? I'm at verse 26. Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, and then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. This was the depth of his obsession with Rachel and her beauty. He was willing to work another seven years, 14 years total, seven times the amount that a man would normally give in a dowry for a woman. Verse 28 says he he did so, and then Laban gave his daughter Rachel to be his wife. And so this is what happened. Jacob ended up with not one, but two wives. Men, can you imagine? A wife that you tolerated and a wife that you were obsessively in love with. Can you say trouble ahead? This was trouble. This is what I want you to see, and this is in your notes if you're taking notes on your note cards. Jacob's romantic desire for Rachel caused him to violate the appropriate boundaries. Jacob's romantic desire, or you could even say Jacob's sexual obsession for Rachel caused him to violate appropriate boundaries. Now, what do I mean by appropriate boundaries? Well, he worked for 14 years instead of saving a couple of years' worth of money to give as a dowry. Uh, His language became dirty and nasty and demanding because he wanted sex with her so badly. He willingly entered into a polygamous relationship, which later became a disaster because he was willing to violate appropriate boundaries because of his desire, which for all practical purposes had displaced God in his life. This is what we need to learn about this. Oh, I wanted you to see this first. Sorry, I almost missed it. (laughs) If they were going to make a movie about Rachel and Jacob, this is probably what it would look like. Here's just a short clip. Men, if you're here with your wife or you're here with your girlfriend, would you turn to her and say, you complete me? Would you just do that real quickly? 
Okay, and now girls, turn back to the man and say, you had me at hello. (laughs) This is what Jacob wanted was this love, this romance, this sexual charge. And, And really, anybody know what movie that's from? Jerry Maguire, you know that, you know that movie. Haven't we been trained to think this is what we need more than anything else in the world? We need, we need someone to say, you complete me. And this is what happens to us, is that desire becomes a god when it causes us to violate proper boundaries. Desire becomes a god when it causes us to violate proper boundaries. There's other stories in the Bible that talk about people that just became so obsessed with another person that they violated all of their boundaries. In 2 Samuel 13, there's the story of King David's daughter Tamar and his son Amnon. They were half-siblings. Tamar was Amnon's half-sister. And he became so obsessed with her that he manipulated her to the point that she was vulnerable and he raped her. The story, I read it this week and. And, and I literally sat at my desk reading this story, weeping. The story is so ugly and so tragic at what happens when a person elevates desire to the place where nothing else matters and they violate all boundaries. Samson is another story in Judges 14 and 15. Uh, Samson was a man that was full of the Holy Spirit. He was set apart to do great things for God, but he became so obsessed with Philistine women that he sacrificed everything. He sacrificed the work of God. He sacrificed the anointing of the Spirit on his life to have sex with the Philistine women. This is what happens when desire becomes a God in our lives. Back to Jacob. Why why was Jacob so susceptible to this temptation? Jacob was a man, uh, he, he was anointed by the Lord too. He was the fulfillment of prophecy that that God would bless Abraham's seed, that the the Messiah would come through his line. Why was he susceptible to this temptation? Uh, His story actually is very unusual because in his culture, people didn't marry for romantic love. People married for status and power. And this idea of romance is very unusual in the biblical text. Why did Jacob give in to this temptation? Well, for one thing, He had lost everything that he loved in his life. He was so close to his mom. And when he had stolen his brother's birthright, he was driven away from his mother. He was driven away from his family. He was driven away from his household. He lost everything. There was no one left who loved him. And there was this deep, empty place in Jacob's heart that that he felt that maybe Rachel could fulfill. I think he probably thought about Rachel that, that if he could just have her, if he could just be married to her, if he could just consummate their marriage, that she would heal all of the hurt that's deep in his heart. And he became susceptible to exceeding the boundaries of, of appropriate behavior. Jacob was unusual in his culture, but he really wouldn't be very rare today. Because in our culture, we have traded a priority of God for the priority of heroic love. 
This is something that, that we have just become almost obsessive in American culture about, that, that we are on this quest to find this heroic soulmate kind of love. And we, we cling to this fantasy that if we can just find that one true love, that one true connection. Anybody watch The Bachelor? All right, a few of you will, will admit it. Chris and I got sucked into The Bachelor this last season. I will admit it. We watched The Bachelor. And I swear, if, the, if one more person said, I have such a connection with him, I thought I would scream. Because this is what our culture believes will make a good, good marriage or a good relationship if we connect, if we find our soul mate, that one person who completes me. There's a young British pop singer by the name of Natasha Bedingfield that came out with a song a couple of years ago that's called Soulmate. And this song really defines what we're looking for when we talk about looking for a soulmate. Listen to this song. It don't matter though Cause someone's bound to hear my cry Speak out if you do You're not easy to find Is it possible Mr. Lovable Is already in my life Right in front of me Or maybe you're in disguise Who doesn't love for Someone to hold Who knows how to love you Without being told Somebody tell me Why I'm on my own If
key line in that song is looking for someone who knows how to love you without being told. The problem with the concept of a soulmate is that it's, it's completely too much pressure for another person to attain to. When we're demanding that someone knows how to love us without any communication, another person can't possibly be that to you. When we have this expectation that somebody will walk into your life and fit you like a glove and heal all the broken places in you, that's something only God can do. And another human being can't possibly fill that role in your life. And so we've been, we've been convinced that a soulmate exists for us and that our quest in this life is to find that soulmate. We've got to find them. It's no wonder, because it's an unrealistic expectation, it's no wonder that millions of people have become disillusioned and bitter and cynical about love. And in this last decade, disillusioned people have traded love, heroic love even, for hookups. And because we can't find the soulmate, we can't find the love, we can't find that satisfaction, millions of people are satisfied with just hooking up. One night stands, friends with benefits, whatever you want to call it. And uh, if, if you've read the news in the last five, six years, you've read about the hookup culture that's taking over our campuses in particular. And young women, specifically, are being encouraged to satisfy their sexual urges without the entanglement of love. Because after all, the logic goes, sex is just a craving just like food, and it ought to be satisfied in whatever way that you need it to be satisfied. C.S. Lewis said, if that were true... If sex were just a craving, just like food, then in the same way that we have strip clubs, we would have food clubs where they would parade donuts out under covered domes and there'd be erotic music and we would slowly lift the cover off the donuts. (laughs) And men and women would flock to the strip show of donuts. It's ridiculous. Sex isn't a craving just like food. Sex was designed by God to be beautiful and good and wonderful and enjoyable and fabulous. But it only only satisfies when it's within the proper boundaries that God created it to be in. Because when we elevate sex to become a God in our lives, it just leads to disappointment and frustration and broken hearts. It's really true. But so many people have just quit trying for love and they're just satisfied with with satisfying an urge. Do you know in the world today, pornography is a $1 trillion a year industry. Just in the last couple of months, we've had huge celebrities who have taken these unbelievable risks. Tiger Woods is one of them. uh, who, Who sacrificed everything. Uh, This man, you can go ahead and put that picture up. This man sacrificed billions of dollars of endorsements for, for the pleasure of sex because sex became like a god to him. Just in the last couple of weeks, uh, Jesse James, who is Sandra Bullock's husband, 
another one, and you, you might not know who he is, but Sandra Bullock just, just won the, the Best Actress Oscar for one of her films last year. Jesse James is married to one of the most successful, beautiful women in the world, but that wasn't enough for him because sex became like a god. And I, I was talking with Jill, Pastor Jill in, in Billings this last week, and she said something to me. She said, uh, it seems like sex can topple just about anybody, regardless of their other virtues. I wrote that down. I thought that was good. Seems like sex can topple just about anybody regardless of their other virtues. Why? Because when we allow it to become a God in our lives, it starts calling the shots. The God demands a sacrifice. The God demands that we do whatever it asks us to do. And we get to the point where we're willing to risk everything. Now, I don't want to be overly simplistic this morning because... I do believe there is such a thing as sexual addiction and there are people who uh, who have, have just gotten their lives so out of control that it just seems like they can't get back on course. And I don't want to be simplistic, but at the same time, there is a profound answer to this problem of making a God out of desire. And the remedy is that we fall in love with the bridegroom. Jesus called himself the bridegroom. And I don't think that that was a flippant statement that he made. He called himself the bridegroom because in saying that, he was saying he is the only one who can walk into that empty place in your heart and completely heal all the pain from the rejection, from the disappointment, from the mistakes, from the errors, all of that stuff that is empty and hurting in your heart that we think we want another human being to fill. Jesus is really the only one who can do it completely, totally, and is absolutely trustworthy. If we're demanding that another person do that, we're probably going to be let down and disappointed. But Jesus can do it. And this morning, to those of you that have allowed desire to become a God in your lives, I believe Jesus would like to say to you, my arms are the only arms you need to wrap around you and heal you and love you and care for you the arms of Jesus that were stretched out in this demonstration of love, giving his life because he loves us, and then because he's God, raising from the dead, powerfully and triumphantly, living forever, not as a legend, but as God, real God, who comes into your life and wraps those crucified arms around you. His arms are the only arms you He alone can heal you. I want to invite you this morning, if you're one of the people, and I have to be honest with you, there have been times in my life when I've let desire become a God in my life. 
I'm not talking to you about something that I haven't wrestled through myself. I have. And if you're here this morning and desire in whatever form has become a God, I want to invite you to come to Jesus and let him love you as a bridegroom. Guys, would you come? We've got next steps. I'll give those to you in just a minute. This isn't what we had planned to do, but I would just like us to sing that song uh, again that we sang earlier about your love is extravagant. Would you, would you just put your Bible and your, and your notes aside for just a moment? We'll, we'll finish up in just a second. Would you just sit back in your chairs and let Jesus love you? Just let Jesus love you.
Would you bow your heads with me? I'd like, I'd like to ask you to keep your eyes closed. And I have just felt all week long that, that Jesus just wanted to set some people free this morning and to change your complete orientation really would appreciate if you just respect everyone's privacy in the room by keeping your eyes closed. I want to pray for you this morning if you're in this place where desire has become a God to you and you have found yourself acting in ways that you never thought you would act because you just have to have this love or you have to have this sex or you have to have this thing to satisfy you. I absolutely believe that the love of the bridegroom can come into your heart and displace that other God that has taken root there. And and I'm going to pray for every person in this room that that needs prayer, and we're going to ask Jesus to come in, to come in powerfully and just disrupt that that other God and push it out and restore your love of Jesus to its proper place. And so this is what I'd like you to do. If you'd like me to pray for you this morning um, for for whatever reason, but if, if you need me to pray for you, would you just look up and catch my eye and I'll know that, that you need the love of the bridegroom. You looking at me? Yes. If I don't acknowledge you, look at me again or thank you. Wave at me a little bit. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Yes. Catch my eye. I'm over on the left-hand side. Anybody else? Thank you. All right. Over here on my right. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Wave at me a little if I've missed you. Okay, Jesus. Hmm. Jesus, I know that you are here in this room powerfully.
Jesus, we know that when we, we erect false gods in our lives, we know that's one of, the, one of the worst sins. It's the number one on the Ten Commandments. And we know that it disrupts our relationship with God. We know that it disrupts our relationships with others. And we know, we know, Jesus, that we can't maintain this worship of this sex God or this romance God or this soulmate God. We can't worship that and experience the blessings of, of the life that you've created for us. And so, Jesus, together, all of us that have indicated that we're giving up this God, we confess the sin of erecting a false God. And Jesus, right now, we... We renounce this God, this God of sex without boundaries. We renounce the God of unrealistic expectations of our spouses. We renounce the, the gods of, of the pursuit of romance at every other expense. And we invite you, Jesus, right now to come in and wrap your arms around us. Jesus, will you come in and fill that empty space that hurts so deeply? Will you heal us? Will you transform us? Will you give us a fresh start? And Jesus, help us to live with you as our number one passion, our number one desire, and our number one priority. And help us, Jesus, to put all those other things in their proper places in our lives. And now, Jesus, I want to pray for people this morning who are seriously out of control. I don't know who they are, but I know many of us have, have allowed sexuality to take a place in our lives where we are just seriously out of control. And I want to pray this morning in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, all, this, all the power of the Almighty God, I pray that that addiction, that those habits, the sinful nature will be broken by the power of Jesus, even as we pray right now. Break it, Jesus, and bring deliverance and freedom to those who are out of control today. And again, Jesus, come in with your love and forgiveness and grace and restoration and heal us. We pray these things in your name, Jesus, and for your glory. Amen. Let me give you three steps this morning that I hope will help you live in freedom. first one is this. These are kind of out of order, but they're the order I came up with. The first one is, so I want to encourage you this morning to let go of the soulmate expectation. Friends, this is, this is an expectation that no human being can fulfill in your life. Let it go and let Jesus be your soulmate. He is your soulmate. He is the only soulmate that exists. And if you're married and you're frustrated, 
Stay faithful to your marriage vows. Love your spouse. One of the most horrifying things I ever saw on television was a few years ago, I was watching Oprah. Again, one of those things I'm not proud of, but uh, The Bachelor, Oprah, whatever, I watch junk. I'm sorry. I was watching Oprah one day, and she had a man. She had a man on the program who was happily married, had several children, and uh, in the middle of his life, found who he believed to be his soulmate. It was another man. And he left his wife and his children to develop a relationship with this man. And Oprah congratulated him on being true to himself, and the audience stood and applauded his bravery, completely ignoring the fact that it devastated his wife and his children. Friends, that man that he went to can't possibly fulfill his expectations of healing that hole in his heart. Only Jesus can. And if you're ever tempted in your life to sacrifice everything for who you think is a soulmate, I hope you will remember Jesus is the only one who can fill that for you. And stay faithful, stay true, stay the course, follow Jesus, and your life will be blessed. Number two is this. Take a risk for real love as opposed to artificial love. And what I mean by this is many of us have substituted artificial love for real love. Some of us are not, uh, are not expressing ourselves sexually within marriage. I'm talking about pornography, masturbation, all that kind of stuff. Real love is the love between a man and a woman in marriage. That's real love. The other part of it is, if you've got something that you've been hiding, take a risk on real love by letting it out of the closet and telling somebody about it so someone can pray with you and stand with you and strengthen you in overcoming and letting Jesus heal you. Take a risk on real love. Be honest and keep sexuality in its proper expression. And then number three, fall in love with the bridegroom. For those of you this morning that have prayed with me today and have asked Jesus to come in and be the lover of your soul. The only way you're going to displace this God that has erected itself is if you replace the God you're taking out with Jesus. And it means that you're going to need to spend time in prayer, spend time in Bible study, love him, find out who he is, and make him your spouse. Some of us have spent so much time pursuing over human love that we have forgotten that God is our first love. First love. Fall in love with him. And you will find that these other things start falling away and your life becomes ordered and and blessed. Does this make sense? Anybody mad at me for saying bad words? I want you to be blessed. I want you to be blessed. And romance, let me just finish up with this. I love romance. Chris and I go out on dates. We light candles. I buy her flowers. We go on trips where we can just be alone because we love romance and we love love. And sex is good. Let me tell you, I don't believe sex is dirty or bad or nasty or should be hidden. It's beautiful. It's good. So don't get the wrong idea from what I'm saying. 
This is good stuff. But our first love is Jesus. First love is Jesus. Keep it that way. Okay? Can you say amen, so be it?